Knock, knock. Who's there, you ask? George Bodarki. That's who. How's that for a cheesy way to open a show on a Saturday morning? You're listening to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Glad you're with us. This morning, we're looking at the origins of comedy in New York City and where to get a good laugh in the Big Apple. We've all struggled to hold back laughter at inappropriate times, or maybe we've cracked a joke that didn't get the reaction we were hoping for. So what makes something funny? On the phone with us this morning to talk about the psychology of humor is Peter McGraw. He's the co-author of the book, The Humor Code. Peter, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me. That's my pleasure. So what makes something funny? Well, this is an old question, uh, one that goes back to Plato and Aristotle. Uh, and the, the short answer is that things that are wrong yet okay, or as we say in the Humor Research Lab, the nine violations are the things that we find funny. What are the benign violations? Well, so uh, that's that's part of the problem is that there are so there are so many that it's impossible to document them all. But the idea behind it is, is that that this is a bit counterintuitive because humor is this really valuable, enjoyable thing, but it actually has its roots in potentially negative or dark things, what we call violations, things that are threatening or wrong in some way. So this could be a physical threat. It could be a misuse of logic or language or a violation of a cultural, social norm. There's something amiss there, and those things that are amiss are the things that we tend to laugh at. That being said, how does humor differ in the United States compared to other parts of the world? Well, so, um, so of course, the things that are amiss are not normally amusing, right? They, they cause us uh, consternation. They anger us. They scare us. They, they need to be seen as okay in some way. And so when you, when you start looking at cultural differences, so comparing the United States to, to another country, what those countries find to be different depends on what people see as wrong or see as okay. So to physical threats, things like slapstick and tickling and play fighting and so on, those things tend to be fairly universal because it doesn't matter whether you're in France, Japan, or the United States. You can see those things as wrong or okay. But as soon as you start getting into language and social norms and so on, well, then it just really depends on what are the values and the beliefs of the people in that particular place. Why is it, Peter, that one person might laugh at something and someone else might think it's totally not funny at all? Uh, so, you know, I have a tendency just to keep going back to, to this idea is that that it's not only the things that we find funny and not are culturally determined, but they're they're individually determined. That is that they're based on our own personal experiences and our and our personal values. And so when one person could be laughing, another person can be outraged and yet another person can be bored. In the first case, the person sees the situation as wrong, yet okay. The person who's offended, they see the situation just as wrong. And the last person, the person who's bored, sees it as, as just okay. It's the same situation, but it, it's seen through the, an individual's own lens. We frequently hear someone say, I know I shouldn't be laughing, but that's funny. Yes. Well, that that in some ways... Uh, recognizes that uh, that there is some violation there, there's something wrong, and although you see it as okay, you know that other people 
are likely not to, and that's how you get that kind of tittering, that sort of norm, nervous laughter where someone's covering their mouth. They're amused, but they know that at least others think they shouldn't be. Well, Peter, thank you so much for your time. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Peter McGraw is a psychology professor at the University of Colorado Boulder and the co-author of the book The Humor Code, out from Simon & Schuster. If you want a good laugh, there are plenty of places in New York City to get one. The city is home to a great number of comedy clubs, and over the years it's helped to launch a lot of comedians to greatness. Marshall Stevenson is a stand-up comic in New York City who runs a tour that delves into the city's comedy history. He's with us in the studio this morning. Marshall, thanks so much for coming in. Oh, glad to be here. So tell me about this comedy tour that you run here in New York City. Well, it was actually inspired by the world-famous Comic Strip Live on 2nd Avenue between 81st and 82nd Street. They have a rich history because they were the club that had Jerry Seinfeld and Eddie Murphy before they were known entities. And they suggested to me, because I had been doing stand-up comedy there, that I run a tour. I'm a tour operator. So they said, well, why don't we run a comedy tour? So we cobbled together a comedy tour that starts at the Paley Center that goes through some of the early videos of Milton Berle and Texaco Star Theater and The Tonight Show and then the sitcoms. All of it is concentrated on New York. And then we go through the city and we see where the Friars Club was, where they all got together in the 50s and insulted each other. It's still due to this day, actually. Uh, the Cosby Stoop, where the Friends friends took supposedly took place. Uh, where the Saturday Night Live character started, where uh, all the early movies were made, and we see all that, plus some of the venerable comedy clubs, and then end at the comic strip with a with a show. So you pretty much see New York City as the epicenter of comedy, huh? There is no other. A comedy is, as we know it today, is a new, uniquely American art form, and everything started in New York. In the early days, it was variety. Comedy, the, 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 the stand-up comedy as we know today actually started kind of in minstrel. I mean, we look today at minstrel as an offensive art form with exaggerated features for black performers, and that, that is what it was. But they had an MC, And so the MC would introduce a variety of acts and that there was born variety out of the immigrant theaters where they had prostitutes and it was bawdy and smoky and dirty and they would make fun of all forms of stereotypes. And where was this? Down on the Lower East Side, of course. Uh This is where everything is. And uh, it became variety, which is you would go to a show and you might see a juggler and you might see a contortionist and then you might see somebody telling jokes and then... Uh, get up and make fun of uh, immigrant Irish people and then, you know, make fun of Jews and then have a musician. And Variety, it began to clean up later in the 19th century, and that's when we start to see vaudeville. And vaudeville is pop culture in this day. All of a sudden, middle class, lower middle class, have some sense of disposable income. They want to laugh. It's a distraction. And... Even the politicians get in on the game because, you know, the political machine, Tammany Hall, which you know about extensively. Mm-hmm. I've heard you talk about it on your show, George. Uh, they were going to vaudeville. Meantime, these vaudeville shows would go out on the road, but the acts would hone their acts in New York, sometimes doing eight, ten shows a week. At this time, later into the 20th century, we start to see early movies These are all going on in New York City. 
Vitagraph, uh, the story of Kaufman Studios, Biograph Studios. These are all inventing in the late 19th century uh, animation, comedy, all going on here in New York. Uh, and then by the 30s, you start to see radio. And, uh, and this is also about this time is when movies are moving out to Los Angeles. And radio is amazing and different for comedy because with vaudeville, much like stand-up comedy today, the, the acts, the, the performers would hone their act and do the same act ten times a day. Now radio... You need fresh acts every day. Mm -hmm. So this enables, this is a totally different kind of thing. And yet you see all the vaudeville stars who have worked on their vaudeville act for years and years and years now going on to radio. And then these same guys were going on to television. These are like George Burns. I mean, you think it's amazing that somebody succeeds in radio or television or stand-up today. These guys were huge stars in vaudeville. And then they became huge stars in radio, and then they became huge stars in television. I was going to ask you the question, who do you think are the greatest comedic stars to ever come out of New York City? Uh, you got to say Milton Berle. I mean, in 1949, television, network television, becomes big. You know, you had television with wrestling and all kinds of other wasted time shows on there before that. But uh, Milton Berle, they say, he didn't sell uh, shows he sold TV sets that people would actually buy TV sets just to see Uncle Milty and the Texaco Star Theater, and uh, that's when comedy becomes even bigger. Now, along the way, you got to realize that comedy is doing something culturally relevant because comedy, in many ways, to this day, is the freest stage. You can get up there and say anything you want. You can't do that, George, behind this microphone. You can't do it in TV. But a comedian can get up there and say things that are incredibly honest. Mm -hmm. And so comedy has, in, in ways that other art forms can't do, it, it questions authority. It upsets the norm. I mean, the famous Marx Brothers who came out of New York City and vaudeville stages and then into the movies right here in New York before they went out to L.A., they were, they were anarchists. They took the norm as was expected by culture and upset it. That we're going to cause problems. You mentioned that you yourself do stand-up comedy. What's it like on that stage? Uh, well, it's exhilarating when it's going well. I would say that, you know, if you're a singer and you're not doing well, it's... It's probably easier just muscle through the song and be done with it. But sometimes you die on stage and uh, and it hurts. You know, artists are a little sensitive to begin with. <laughs> and you have a focus group. It's unique in that all your jokes get judged right away. You know how they turned out right away. And once in a while, somebody will be like, you suck. I'm not to me, but I, <laughs> well, I mean, so you hope that you do enough shows so that you know that your material works. And the problem is that the people in front of you just don't get it. But I, at the beginning, it's frightening. Do you have a nice clean joke you can share with no, us? No, 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 no. No. Doesn't, doesn't work that way. Doesn't work that way. No, you got to no. be on stage. You got to be yeah, in the moment. Yeah. Now, if anyone wants to go on your comedy tour, where can they learn more about it? Tour Guides, www.tourguidesofnewyork. You can also go to uh, zerv.com and you can see exactly uh, where we go and 
how long it is. Uh, we're running sporadically through the winter season. We'll bring it up to once a week again in the spring. And if you have a group of 10 people, we also charter groups, and we change them around too. We can also do a walking tour for you. Down on Bleecker Street in McDougal, that's where you have so much of the comedy history and so many of the comedy clubs, and we'll put together something for you that would include all of that. Marshall Stevenson, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you, George. Marshall Stevenson runs the History of Comedy Tour NYC. You can find out more about his tours on tourguidesofnewyork.com. When you think about famous comedians, a lot of names probably come to mind. Marshall named a few. But how many of those comedians are women? Chances are, not too many. And that poses a problem for a lot of women in comedy. WFUV's Katie Meyer has more. Shelley Coleman first started doing stand-up comedy in the 80s. It was during the, the sort of the age of comedy when everybody was standing in front of a brick wall and had their sleeves rolled up and was talking about what's the deal with airline food. It was a different time. And it was also a time, Coleman says, when there were very few women doing comedy successfully. Today, that situation is still not good. It's improved since the 80s, but according to Coleman, women in comedy are still not on a level playing field. If you walk into a room, if you walk into an open mic, say there's 25 people, there'll be 21 men and four women. On a good day. And Coleman's not the only one who's noticed this. Yeah, you know, I'd still say it's probably 75% men, 25% women. That's Chris Mazzilli, co-founder of Gotham Comedy Club. Since the club's birth in the early 90s, Mazzilli has been responsible for hiring comedians for his shows. And even though only one in four of his comedians is a woman, Mazzilli counts Gotham among the more female-friendly clubs. At the end of the day, we probably book, I'm going to say conservatively, 48 different headliners. So we do have some people come back and repeat. And I'd say, you know, probably a quarter of those are, are female. I don't think a lot of clubs can say that. This imbalance is more than a statistic. Improv comedian and arts director of New York's Magnet Theater, Megan Gray, says that being in the minority is a lot of pressure. Like, if you're the only one out, I think you're the odd person out. You're the, the other. I, I think you do have to work a little harder. Just as a woman, I would say even in the world. So how do women in comedy deal with this inequality? Well, many, like Gray, are turning to all-female comedy groups. That's the sound of an all-woman show called We Might Just Kiss. It's held at Magnet Theater every week and features female comedians from Magnet's improv classes. Gray hosts the show, and she says it does wonders for the women involved. There's a feeling that you get when you're on stage with all women that you don't get when you're with men. There's just a feeling of like, I can do anything and I'm going to be totally supported. And in improv, that's really important. Lady shows like that one have become more numerous in recent years. But some women comedians think they might do more harm than good. Shelley Coleman thinks that all female groups just isolate women. It's useful as a way to develop your own voice. It's useful as a way to develop your comedy. But it's also ghettoizing. You know, if you if that's if you do only that, you're allowing other people to say you're different, so you should be over there. Gray stresses that the purpose of shows like hers is not to keep female comedians separate from men. She says the shows are really more of a confidence booster. We're not anti-men. We're not, like, you can't perform with men. This is a little, uh, like, a recharge. It's like recharging your batteries a little bit of, I'm in this safe place with all these women, and, uh, and we, like, gain energy from each other that we then bring out into the world. And if there's any consensus about the future of women comedians, it's that there is no easy fix for the inequality problem. But the fact that there's been progress in the last few decades is a source of hope to comedians like Shelley Coleman and Megan Gray. Even if the comedy playing field still isn't level, it's getting better all the time. I'm Katie Meyer, WFUV News.
This is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Good morning once again. I'm George Borarki. This morning, we're tickling your funny bone with a show about comedy. With so many options available, navigating New York City's comedy scene, even to a native New Yorker, can be daunting. On the phone with us now is freelance comedy writer Elise Chakowsky. She's here to help us find our footing in the city's comedy arena. Elise, thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you for having me. So on a scale of 1 to 10, how would you rate New York City's comedy scene? I would say it's a 10. I would say it's the best place definitely in the U.S. that you're going to find comedy. What makes it so good for comedy? I think that it's a place that um, a lot of comics come to after they've started out. They maybe start out in the town they go to college or they'll move to Chicago or Portland or Austin and they kind of get the basics and then they move to New York with a little bit of experience. And so the sort of entry level of comedy here is really, really good. And then there's so much room to grow because the best comics in the country, Louis C.K. and Chris Rock, they still are in New York and people still have something to work towards. So there's just so many people doing so many things. And so inevitably, there's just going to be a lot of amazing comedy going on. What are among the best comedy clubs in the city? I think the Comedy Cellar is sort of ironically both the most famous and the best club, which is not always how these things work. But in the last few years, uh, with shows like Louie and there's a Seinfeld documentary about 10 years ago that was all set at the Comedy Cellar, I think it put it in people's minds that this is a great place to see comedy. It's a place where a lot of big names still go to work at material, but there's also a lot of really great young comics who can get up and sort of make a name for themselves there. And it's got really good crowds. It's got a really good vibe. And it's, um, I would say, it's still the best comedy club, traditional comedy club in the city. How expensive is it to take in a night of comedy in New York City with drink minimums, food minimums, that kind of thing? It really depends on where you're going. If you're going to the Comedy Cellar, I believe it's normally a $15 cover, and then you're paying a two-drink minimum, so you're looking at $25 to $30 a person at a minimum. If you're going someplace like Caroline's or Gotham, which are headlining clubs where you're going to maybe get more big names, you're going to go on a Saturday at 8 o'clock, you might be looking at a $40 ticket plus $20 in food and drink. But if you don't want to spend a lot of money, there's places like the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater, um, Pit, Magnet, those are all sort of more improv and sketch theaters. They tend to be 5 or $10 with no minimums or anything like that. Or you can go to shows and bars on weeknights that are free, and no one, there's no one at the door. You can come and go as you please. No one, no one cares. So there's kind of something for everyone, depending on your schedule and your budget and how invested you are in, in um, either seeing something you already know or if you want to be adventurous. You can, you can do anything you like. Elise, thanks so much. Thank you. Elise Chakowsky is a freelance comedy writer right here in New York City. My life is a joke. That's an exasperation we've all used. There's truth in comedy as performers use their lives to relate material to an audience. Comedian Brad Zimmerman knows that well. In his show, My Son, the Waiter, a Jewish tragedy, Brad acts out moving to New York City and waiting tables for 29 years as he continued to pursue his dream of comedic acting. He's on the phone with us this morning. Brad, thanks for taking the time. So how long of a journey was it for you from waiting tables to a one-man show? Well, uh, I started waiting tables 78 or 79 and and uh, started working on this particular one-man show 
in 2005 and then stopped waiting tables in 2007. So that's that's a long time of waiting tables. And uh, the show itself, before I was able to actually start to reap the financial fruit of the show, I would say nine years, you know, working on the show. And keep in mind, it's a hybrid part stand-up, part theater. So I was able to do the stand-up part in my act whenever I was working with, you know, some of the stars I've worked with or headlining at various uh, places like... um, uh, whether it be a country club or a synagogue or or whatever, um, or festivals, whatever. So it's been a long, long journey, arduous uphill, but incredibly gratifying. When you're waiting tables in New York City, how much does the material write itself? Well, that's a good question. I, I think, you know, you're talking about writing funny. For me, writing funny is just writing truth. In other words, there's different processes. Uh, I I think for me, it writes itself when, you know, people relate to what what is. In other words, if a woman can't make up her mind and she's taking forever and you hear everything she says and all these silly things like I had chicken for lunch, so I don't want that and this and that. So you put that in the act because the audience is going, oh, my God. That's me. You know what I'm saying? Uh-huh. So that beca- that writes itself. So, yes, there's a lot of it that does can write itself as long as it's real. Do you know what I'm saying? It, it, that's what really is funny is truth. That's really what my comedy's based on. I don't, for the most part, I'm not, my punchlines come out of nowhere, which is really good because you don't expect them because they're truth. And so it's not like, oh, here comes the punchline, like in a lot of sitcoms. You know when it's coming. So, uh, yes, it, it, it does write itself, as I said, if it's coming from truth. What do you think, Brad, of customers who come in at closing time? <laughs> I would say of all the—it's the, the um, it's not about them coming in at closing time— it's it's about the combination of them coming in, but more the manager seating them. It's that combination. It's who are you more angry at, the customer or the manager? And it's probably the manager. You know, for whatever reason, it's almost like the manager is, is kind of, you feel either the manager is sucking up to the owner or is punishing me or exhibiting, this is their power in the universe. This is the only power they'll ever have. So naturally, you know, when I walk up to the customer under those circumstances, it's very difficult. You have to really, you have to put on a game face like, I love you, when you really want to slap them. You know what I'm saying? It's a very difficult uh, situation because, you know, it means another half an hour, an hour in the restaurant when you could be home sleeping. Would you be where you are today if you hadn't waited tables, though? Well, the reality is, it's a good question. Here's the bottom line. You you grow up Jewish, and the typical Jewish kid, you know, the whole thing with the doctor and the, you know, the lawyer, the Jewish mother and everything, this title of my play, My Son, the Waiter, a Jewish Tragedy. I had two choices. I could work for my father, which meant selling furniture, or I could struggle, 
which meant wait tables and try to be an actor. And that was an easy choice. I'd much rather struggle and, you know, blah, 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 and wait tables than sell furniture. Sell furniture for me was institutional America. It was, it would have left, as I see it now, due to my success, a huge creative void in my life because obviously I have found my niche and gotten really good at it from 35 years of practice. I mean, I, the show has been getting tremendous response. Who are your comedic inspirations? Well, I started doing, I took a stand-up class when I was 42. So in terms of who are my inspirations, well, let's put it this way. You know, I, I worked for years with Joan Rivers and I worked with George Carlin. I wouldn't call them inspirations except for the fact that they're both legends and they're both, they were both two of the greatest who have ever lived, especially Carlin, just in terms of his, you know, 15 HBO specials, which means 15 hours of new material. I mean, it's mind-boggling. And his, uh, but I would say, I would, you know, when I was a kid, I would watch the Ed Sullivan show, which meant that I would be watching old Catskill comics. And those are my, those are the guys that I love. The, they were such pros and their timing. And, you know, people, I work more in the vein of the older comics. They worked slow. They took their time. They allowed silence. A lot of comics today bombard you with material, and they don't really give you the time to process, which an audience needs, and I do. The show is My Son the Waiter, A Jewish Tragedy. Brad Zimmerman, we'll see you on the stage. Thank you. Brad Zimmerman is a comedic actor in New York City. His one-man show, My Son the Waiter, A Jewish Tragedy, is playing at the Triad Theater in Manhattan. Over the course of his comedy career, Zimmerman opened for legends like Joan Rivers and George Carlin. And speaking of Carlin, he recently got a street renamed after him in Morningside Heights. New York City Councilman Mark Levine was instrumental in making that happen for the late comedian. Councilman Levine, thanks for taking the time to talk with me. My pleasure. So why rename a New York City street after the late comedian George Carlin? Well, of course, he grew up in Morningside Heights, right on 121st Street. And the truth is you really can't understand the history of the neighborhood without understanding the life of George Carlin, and vice versa. You can't understand his life and his biography without understanding the influence that Morningside Heights of the 1940s played in his life. And this is a way now that generations to come will will be able to see his name there right on the corner of Amsterdam and 121st, and they'll know that uh, his life and the life of the neighborhood were, were really intertwined. How did the neighborhood impact George Carlin? Well, folks who know Morningside Heights today, where it's really an extension of Columbia, should have a different image in mind. Back in George Carlin's childhood, it was really a tough neighborhood, a diverse neighborhood, an immigrant neighborhood, um, uh, in many ways part of Harlem. He actually called it White Harlem, sort of half-jokingly. But you can imagine that uh, a kid with a small frame like his probably had to learn to defend himself using his words and his wit. And I also like to think that, at least in one way, Harlem rubbed off on him, which is that it's a neighborhood which has always um, spoken truth to power, and he sure did that in his career. Now, Carlin went to Catholic school in Morningside Heights, didn't he? 
He did. Uh, he went to the local parish uh, where he had a, a bit of a rocky tenure as a student, to put it mildly. Uh, but what was really fascinating at the memorial sir, or the street renaming service um, was how many people commented on really the unknown side of his relationship to the parish and talked about uh, his, not his daughter actually mentioned that nuns used to send him books of poetry for many years after he left there as a student. So publicly, yes, it was a stormy relationship, and he was always uh, quick to, to criticize the parish and the church, but it did appear to play a, an important role in his life all the way up to the end. I was going to say Carlin was known for being anti-religion, for using profanity. How much opposition, if any, did you face in getting the street renamed in that neighborhood? Well, there were some... Uh, leaders in the local parish that were, were quite opposed to it being located um, on the corner uh, adjacent to the church. Um, and in the end, uh, we struck a good compromise where it's on the other end of the block, about 70 feet away from the church. Uh, that seemed to satisfy the folk of the parish, but still gave George uh, a commemoration rightfully on the block where he grew up. Councilman Levine, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Anytime. Councilman Mark Levine helped push through the renaming of a street in Morningside Heights after the late comedian George Carlin. Something else we have in common. Flying on the airlines and listening to the airlines' announcements and trying to pretend to ourselves that the language they're using is really English. Doesn't seem like it to me. Whole thing starts when you get to the gate. First announcement. We would like to begin the boarding process. Extra word, process, not necessary. Boarding is enough. We'd like to begin the boarding. Simple, tells the story. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. Remember, past episodes of the show are available in our archives at wfuv.org slash cityscape. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for show updates and New York City tidbits. We're listed on both as WFUV Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to producer Taylor Nolk. Have a great weekend. It's WFUV and WFUV HD New York. Listener-supported public media from Fordham, the Jesuit University of New York. Music discovery starts here.